If you'll go ahead and find a seat as quickly as you can. We have just a couple updates I want to give you before we get started and dive into 1 Samuel. We'll be going through 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 today. I'm grateful to God that our church loves fellowshipping and enjoys being together and that there is the love of Jesus Christ that we share with each other in our conversation, in our relationships. So that's a good sign to see. Um, just wanted to, to say thank you to Pastor Imad Sami for coming to visit the area and coming to visit our church and be with us. Um, we are grateful. And um, if you haven't gotten to meet him yet, I'd encourage you to get to meet him this morning. Um, not only was he there Saturday night with the youth and this morning with a few people, um, through the efforts of many believers there and, and Pastor Sami's leadership, he is helping to spread the gospel in North Africa, in the Middle East, and God is doing a great work in and through that ministry, and uh, Ahmad is a part of that ministry, and, and Lord willing, that will continue for many years to come, and we will see many people, many pastors raised up, and we are encouraged by the work that's going on there as pastors are raised up and trained, and Ahmad is an integral part of that, and as churches are planted, and that's the primary means that Ahmad is in faith for the gospel to be spread. I think that's a New Testament model as well, and so we're excited about seeing what God would do there. And, um, and Pastor Ahmad's asked to just say a moment or two um, to share with you. So, um, Pastor Ahmad. It's a great opportunity to have to say thank you for uh, Pastor Matt, for Pastor Aaron, for all the church leadership and church council, even for the congregation, for each family. Give us great opportunity to spend a wonderful time with my kids, Glory and Fadi, to have such fellowship and share about what God is doing in Middle East and North Africa. We really appreciate it. We are here for one message. Since Ross and Pastor Matt, he sends his letter and his invitation, the message the Lord put into my heart, which I speak this morning, from Book of Acts, Chapter 16, when, when Paul, he tried to preach the gospel, and the Lord take him from Asia Minor to uh, Macedonia, and he tried to preach the gospel as he used but the Holy Spirit is not allowed to preach the gospel uh, in Asia Manor. Then, during the night, he see that uh, man, he appeared to Paul at that night through vision. And cry to Paul, cross and come to help us. This is the message I came from far away when Pastor Matt sent his invitation to come to speak to this congregation. Cross and come to help us. Cross and come to help us. Your leftover can make such transformation. I speak for those who with limited resource before to speak with unlimited resource. You can help. You can participate through your prayer, through your intercession. Come and look what is the Lord doing in Middle East through short term Outreach, we are going to speak with Pastor Matt and Pastor Aaron and Ross and who is involved in uh, church leadership here. Come and see. Maybe finances, what you are not needed, can do a lot. For those who are under the persecution and destruction and that. Because of that, I am going to make something spiritually we call a prophetic act. A prophetic act. Which is, I have something here would like to introduce for the church and behalf of you, 
I would like to give it for Pastor Matt. Please, Pastor Matt, come. And this is behalf of all the congregation. would like to give that plate, which is, have something written here about mm-hmm. Egypt and the ministry with the logo of uh, Redeemed Grace Church here. And say something. I will let Pastor uh, Matt to read that for you. This is on or not. Um, Iman, thank you so much. We are very humbled and, and I'm, 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 uh, I don't know how to, how to respond really. Very gracious of you. It, it, it has both uh, the Middle East, North Africa Initiative Ministry, which is what Imad helps to lead, and then our church's logo, Redeeming Grace Church. It says, Lend a hand to reap the plentiful harvest for reaching our nations and regions. And then we have the Egyptian flag and the American flag together in unity. So um, thank you so much for that generous gift. Um, very much. When, when we get a facility, this will hang on one of the walls in our facility. Thank you very much. That's very generous of you, very kind of you. And I pray that God continues to to expand his church in the midst of persecution like he always has. Thank um, you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Thanks for the church. Absolutely. I'll leave this up here for later if you want to come take a look at it as well. So, oh. It's a good reminder to us, uh, not only from the book of Acts, that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty, God was continuing to be at work expanding His church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the, the model really all throughout the book of Acts. And it's a good reminder for us to have men like Ahmad and see that despite the Arab Spring and the revolutions that have occurred in, in the Middle East, and despite really the opposition to Christianity in many countries and 15 of the Muslim nations, there is much opposition to the gospel. I think it was, were you saying eight, eight different countries? It's illegal. Seven. Seven different countries. It's illegal to share the gospel. It's illegal to give someone, uh, a Muslim, the Bible to, for them to possess it. So it's good to see that in the midst of persecution, God is not thwarted. His power is unhindered and His Holy Spirit is continuing to expand His church. And we want to be a part of that and we're going to pray for him in just a moment. I'm going to say two different prayers. Another update I just want to give to you is, um, I told you last week we had made an offer on the Abundant Life Church building we're pursuing, and we just got a counter offer back on Friday. We're going to decide today on what our response to that is going to be, so uh, we would cover your prayers for that. We had 94.7% of our congregation affirmed purchasing it and taking out a loan for up to 400000 We want to be wise, though, and steward the resources God has given us, so if you'll help pray for us there. Um, they have made a counter offer, uh, about 20000 less their asking price. We have to figure out what is wise for us as a church to do and still be able to renovate things. So um, we're going to take a moment to pray for that and then pray for Pastor Imad Sami and the mission there. So would you join me together in prayer? Thank you. Father, first we, we lift up Pastor Imad Sami, Lord, and his family. God, thank you for your evident fruitfulness in his life. God, thank you that you are the one who saved Pastor Imad, Lord, just like you were the one who saved us. God, all of us are saved equally by your grace, Lord. None of us are deserving our own. You have sought us and called us, and thank you that you are seeking and saving the lost all throughout the world. Father, thank you that you are raising up a church in Egypt and in 
the Muslim countries of North Africa and the Middle East. Thank you that your purposes will prevail. And, and God, thank you that despite persecution, you are raising up people who will speak on your behalf. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen Pastor Ahmad and his family and glory and Fadi, Lord, that you would, you would strengthen them and fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, you would give them courage in the face of opposition. You would give them favor in Egypt. You would, Lord, give them the means to speak and spread your word. God, I pray that you would bring men and raise them up to be pastors and plant in those countries where it's illegal to go. God, I pray that you would bring finances, that you would bring your workers to the harvest, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, even now the harvest is ripe in the Muslim world. God, I pray that you would bring in a bountiful harvest for your kingdom. God, I pray also that it, you would encourage Imad and Glory and Fadi and you strengthen them, that you would gird them up, that you would fill them afresh with your spirit. And God, I pray that you would renew our vision as well for, for communicating the gospel in our communities and people where we might be seeing growing opposition here, Lord. I pray that we might all be encouraged to stand up for you, to speak your life-giving words. Because, Lord, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And, Lord, that's our hope. And, God, we also want to turn our attention to just practical matters, Lord, um, practically to provide for Imad and, and his family and for the ministry there. And then practically we pray that you provide for this church building we're looking at. And, God, you would give us wisdom and lead us and guide us. God, we don't pretend to know on our own, but Lord, we are faithfully putting our trust in you and asking you to lead us and guide us. Lord, give us favor and wisdom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to be reading chapter 5 and 6 both. Originally planned just to do chapter 5, but digging into chapter 5, it just seemed that Chapter 5 and 6, there's a unifying theme that ties both of these chapters together. And if you remember a little recap from two weeks ago when we were in 1 Samuel last, we were in 1 Samuel 4. And if you recall, 1 Samuel 4 was a very bleak chapter. It was a very bleak one. The people of Israel had not been faithful. They'd abandoned God. The people were doing what seemed right in their own eyes. And the priesthood was corrupt. They were self-serving. And instead of serving God and his people, the people tried to do battle against the Philistines on their own. They didn't seek God. They just went out to battle against the Philistines. And they lost. And instead of stopping and repenting and turning back to God, they said, well, wonder what's wrong here. Hmm, maybe we forgot to take our, our little ark with us. Maybe we forgot to take this talisman with us. And so they treated the ark of God like a talisman or a rabbit's foot. As if it was a lucky charm. Like a superstitious baseball player who wears his lucky socks because he thinks wearing them will win him the game. And they, they kind of treated God with that same kind of casual disregard with that taking him lightly. And God won't be taken lightly. He won't be used by us. God isn't used to serve our purposes. We are created to serve Him. And so they, they took the ark along and they called it it. They weren't looking to God and His presence. They were looking to it to do their bidding. And the people were slaughtered brutally. 30,000 people died. You know, using God to serve your own idols doesn't end well. And that's what we saw in chapter 4. 
Then God prophesied judgment that the people had ignored Eli and the priest. They'd ignored continual reminders, several reminders to Eli and the priesthood about turning and about how God would judge them and they didn't listen. And so God brought a sure and swift judgment on Eli and his sons and he killed them in battle. And then the ark of God was carried away. This is the lowest point in Israel's history. This is the first time that the ark of God was taken away from God's people. God's presence was removed from them. And at the end of chapter 4, we see that that the daughter-in-law of, of Eli, she is pregnant. She hears the news that her husband has died. Her father-in-law has died. She hears that the ark of God has been taken. She goes into premature labor and she gives birth to a son. They try to encourage her and say, hey, a son's going to continue lineage of the priesthood. And she says, no. She wasn't encouraged. She says, I'm going to name this son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. God's presence has left us. His glory has departed. And that's really the stage that we have set here as we come into chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Samuel. Some might have thought that God had been captured. Maybe that since God's ark was taken away, that God has been proven to be weak and that God can't be relied on and powerless. Maybe today many of God's people are deciding to just do what's right in their own eyes and have abandoned God's word as their guide. Not thinking that God and His Word and His guidance are, are good for us either. Churches and pastors bow to cultural pressures and give in to endorsing or at least soft peddling sin and bringing the, the true healing power of God's Word. Instead of doing that, they, they change God's Word to suit their needs, although God's Word can never really be changed. People who call themselves Christians can, can try to just use God like a talisman to make themselves feel better. People in the culture around us are not too different from the people in 1 Samuel. Try to seek the benefits of God, but not God himself. Trying to seek God to make you successful in business or your enterprise or to give you glory instead of giving glory to God. And we see that in all around the United States and our culture, we see that God has been kicked out of schools and kicked out of the government place and assigned a peripheral place at most, kind of like the culture in that day while being openly mocked and maligned as irrelevant, maybe quaint at best. Some say that the real problem with our culture is religion. I think we can relate to the context of the chapters of 1 Samuel, can't we? Not only was the ark of God removed from the people and captured the Philistines, they took the ark away like a trophy for themselves. As if they had conquered God. But God, he won't be conquered. And in chapter 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel, we see there's a problem here. And the writer of Samuel, God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to see something. That there is a problem here. There's a problem that the people of Israel had. And there's a problem that we have as well. And there is an ongoing problem on our own. And it's a big problem. And the problem is this. It's the main idea I want to get across. I think God wants to get across through these chapters 5 and 6. And it's that God's presence is a problem. I mean, what do you mean? God's presence is a problem that we can't solve on our own. We can't resolve the problem of God's presence on our own. God's presence is dangerous. It's not safe. God's presence is not something to be trifled with. God's presence is a problem. And why is it a problem? Because, you see, God originally created mankind to be in his presence, didn't he? The very beginning, God created man and woman in his image to have communion, to be in God's presence in the garden, which was 
which was where God walked and communed with mankind. And yet man rebelled from God and sin caused this separation from God's presence because God's presence cannot bear sin. And so ever since then, we've had a problem that we're made to be in God's presence, but we cannot be because God's presence is holy. And so God, for man's protection, put angels blocking the way to the garden and to the tree so they would not be able to be in God's presence because God's presence would be deadly if we try to come to God on our own. Apart from God's grace, we have a really big problem. Apart from God making a way for us to come into his presence, we have a massive problem that we can't solve on our own. And we all try to solve it in different ways apart from the grace of God. Humanity tries to do a few things. They either try to, to isolate God and act like he doesn't exist, exist, to ignore God, to maybe hate God. You know what, atheism and people who deny God and say that he doesn't exist, that they can pretend that God doesn't exist, but it doesn't make the problem go away because God does not go away. No matter how you ignore God, it doesn't change who he is and what we're created to be. The other response we see from people who try to be religious on their own is they try to make it to God on their own. They try to perform. They try to, to live a right life. They try to look good on the outside. They try to wear the right clothes, talk the right way, act the right way, act religious maybe, and achieve before God. Actually, that's most of the world's religions, including Islam, including a lot of people who profess Christianity. Try to come to God on their own terms to achieve righteousness on their own. But there's a problem there. God won't have that. There's a problem of God's presence. Apart from God's grace, we don't run to God and seek Him for who He is unless He draws us. But we all know that something's missing and there is a problem that we can't solve on our own. We're going to see five scenes kind of vividly laid out for us in these chapters. Five vivid pictures that show us that there's a problem of God's presence that we can't fix, we can't solve on our own. And I'm going to take each snippet of Scripture, one scene at a time, and walk us through that so we can see each scene, how the author is setting this up and showing us that we've got a problem and we can't solve it. Not even God's people can solve it on their own. And so let's look at God's holy inspired word in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 5. This is God's word. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And his head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The first scene that we see here is that God is greater than other gods and he won't be mocked. What's the author trying to get us to see? Why is he painting this picture for us? Why is he showing this? He's trying to show that God is greater than other gods and he won't be mocked no matter how it appears. Although God might appear to be captive to, to secular humanism. He might appear to be captive to postmodernism. God is not beneath any of the false idols and gods that we might create. He's greater than other gods and he won't be mocked. 
They try to make a mockery of him by bringing the ark in and setting it beside Dagon to worship Dagon as if Dagon had conquered God. They bring that ark of God into the temple. It was commonly thought in those days that if Armony possessed its enemy's God, that they would have completely conquered not only their enemy, but their God as well. That's where the ideal, although it's much different in, in, in some, some ways, the idea of a college team stealing a mascot of another team came from. The idea that, you know, originally if you have the mascot, you kind of conquered the other team. You've demoralized and motivated them. I was reading about how at MIT they stole Caltech's Fleming Cannon. It's like a 1,700-pound cannon. Moved it 3,000 miles away to their campus in Boston trying to show they were superior over Caltech. And I might have to agree with them. But... In the ancient days, it really meant something. It wasn't just a symbol. It, 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 was, it was showing that they had defeated and robbed their enemy of their most prized possession and defeated and taken away the enemy's power completely. It would have been a public commentary to physically symbolize that they thought the Israelites' God had been conquered by their God, Dagon. You know... There's, there was a book that came out, a popular atheist book, that, that declared that God is dead. That the error of God has passed. But God is greater than other gods, and he will not be mocked. The Philistines thought that Yahweh was under Dagon's control and worshipped Dagon. And to the Israelites as well, the ark of God wasn't supposed to just be a thing or it. It was where God's very presence was mediated to his people, and yet they treated it like an object. But God showed that he's not to be placed alongside of the gods. He is above all other gods. God won't serve man's idols and he won't be mocked. He won't serve our idols that we create for him and he won't be mocked. He will bring our idols low to worship him as well. So in the middle of the night, God's true power is shown. And we have this almost comical picture of this this great huge statue and this small ark about that long and about that wide, although it was, it was covered in gold and had cherubs on it, it, it wasn't as large as the statue of Dagon would have been. It probably was 20, 30 feet high. And yet we see that, that God revealed his power in the middle of the night and the statue of Dagon is prostrated in a pose of worship before the ark that, it was, put before, that was put before it. And so the Philistines, they get up and go in the temple the next day. They find Dagon's worshiping the ark in this, in this pose. They put the ark beside it and somehow Dagon had gotten and prostrate in front of the ark. And then they tell this comical story, at least to Israelites in that day. What would have been comical is that the Philistines, it says they, they take Dagon and they prop him up and they put him back in his place. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's kind of a, this comical thing is with a wry smile. I can imagine the author writing this because what kind of God has to be propped up by men? What kind of God has to be lifted up and put back in his place because he can't do it on his own? And that's really what the Bible is trying to say is that, that there is no true God but God. All other idols are mute and incapable. Incapable of any true power on their own. It's only the power that we give to them. And so, yet we do the same thing. We set up idols. We try to use God to get what we want. But God won't be mocked. So the next day, they found Dagon again 
after they put him up in his place, and I don't know if they secured it or tried to weigh it down or what they did, but I'm guessing they just stick it up. They were like, hey, why did that fall last night? Let's, let's figure that out and let's make it sit up. And, but the next day, they see Dagon again prostrated in front of the ark. But this time, there's a curious thing. His hands and his head are cut off. His hands and his head are cut off. It was a practice for ancient armies to desecrate the leader of their enemies by cutting off their hands and heads. That's what they did to Saul later on. The Philistines did that to Saul and put him in the temple of Dagon. It was a practice to show that they had authority over their enemy. And what did God do in that temple? He cuts the hands off and the head off of Dagon to show that no. He has authority. He is conquered. He was, he was showing them demonstrably that their sign that they have over their enemies was the very thing he used to say that he has power and authority over Dagon. That Dagon's hands were cut off. He cannot act. Dagon's head was cut off. He cannot think or speak. This is a powerless, inept, mute, feeble God. Obviously, the Philistines got the message and they saw it for the signs that it was. Dagon, his hands were helpless. He was handless. This is in direct contrast to verse 6. We're going to read in just a moment where the author writes that the hand, and this is for a good reason. See, Dagon's hands were cut off. He was helpless. He couldn't do anything. And then in verse 6, it tells us the hand of the Lord was heavy. Dagon had been lightened of his hands. God's hands were not light. Brings us to the second scene we're going to see from chapter 5, 6. That goes all the way through to the end of, of, of 6, 9. And the second scene that we see is that God's hand is heavy. God's hand is heavy. It's something that's repeated. It's repeated throughout this passage here five times at least that God's hand is heavy. Dagon's hands, the hands of a false god, they are light. And what's that trying to depict? God is his own conqueror. God has true power. God has power to act. God conquers. His hand is heavy. So let's read 1 Samuel 5, 6 to 12 together. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Remember, this is right after his lightened hands of Dagon. It says, And he, God, terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for, again, his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, The hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, trying to get rid of it. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. God is showing here that he is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a God to be taken lightly. He is a God of power. He is a God of activity. He is a God who conquers on his own. He doesn't need the help of any man to set him up, to prop him up, to put him in his place. God takes care of himself. 
And treating God as just an addition to another God is as common as is not acceptable to God. And one day, every knee of every God will bow. And every tongue will confess that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord, His presence incarnate. But it says God terrified the Philistines. He afflicted them. The author, he, he five times, he, he depicts God's heavy hand repeatedly. In verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. In verse 7, His hand is hard against us and Dagon our God. In verse 9, the arks moved and Ashdod to Gath. The hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. In verse 11, the ark of God was moved again to Ekron. There was a deathly panic. The hand of God was very heavy there. And then later in, in verse 5 of chapter 6, we'll read in a moment, it says that they make a guilt offering and they hope. It says, we'll read this in a moment, but let's just skip ahead for a moment and look at, in, in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says they hope that perhaps he will lighten his hand, that he will lighten his hand because they cannot lighten it off of them. God lightened their God's hands, but they cannot lighten God's hands. And they're hoping and making a guilt offering that perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. They saw that God's hand was able to conquer not only them and their gods, but their land. What do we see here? God's, God's supremacy over all things that he's able to conquer. His hand is heavy. God was showing he is his own conqueror. He prevails without the aid of any man. That's good news for us. No one can thwart his purposes. No one can thwart his plan. And, and God probably sent something like the bubonic plague upon them because the way the, the language shows the swelling, the tumors, and it's associated with rats or mice. It was, it was probably something like a bubonic plague. But they realized that this was not just happenstance. Their illness was connected with them having the ark because wherever the ark went, so did the plague. So they asked their nobility, their, their leaders, what should we do? What should we do? Now, they had two potential responses, Right? If they knew that their God served Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, what should they have done? They should have perhaps repented and and prostrated themselves before God and sought Him and asked for His favor and, and said that this is the presence, the true power we need to seek. But instead, what, what they're trying to do is, what should we do? We have to get rid of God because He makes us uncomfortable. And isn't that what so many people do today? God threatens idols. And instead of bowing down and worshiping, which is the appropriate response to God, people try to get rid of God. He makes us uncomfortable. Get him away from here. How can we get, if we get rid of God, everything will be okay. And yet God's hand is heavy. And so the scene we have is God God is really marching through. You see, the Israelites thought that they could conquer the Philistines by bringing God along with them. And God's saying, no, I'm the one who conquers. And so God takes a victory march through all of the cities of the Philistines. The, the three largest cities of the Philistines, and they have five major cities. And he goes through three of the, the five major cities, taking a victory march, conquering on his own, in his own way, without the help of any man. And so the people of Ashdod and Gath and now Ekron, they're, they're hoping to get rid of it. God's presence is terrified and calls it a very great panic, it says. And they cried out in fear to be killed. It was like a, a bad game, a hot potato, where the potato kills everybody that comes near. <laughs> That's one flaming hot potato. I don't want to hold that. 
People back around saying, what are you doing? We're all going to be killed. And then it says that this triumphant march of God to these biggest cities of the Philistines, see God's reversing the roles, and instead of the Philistines being the conqueror, God says, no, you think you're the conqueror? I'm conquering you. And I don't need anybody to do it for me. His presence is not something light. It's heavy and God's presence is terrifying. It causes panic and fear, a deathly panic that kills. And they gather all the leaders of the Philistines and say, what do we do to send it back? It's clear that this thing is destroying us. And it it says a comment there that must have been terrifying. And you can read over it really quickly. It says that everyone who didn't die, every man who didn't die of the plague had tumors. That must have been a panic-inducing thing. Either you're dead or you're sick, and there wasn't an in-between. It was horrific. We're not told how many, but we know this. Everyone was affected. Men were dying or had tumors, and the outcry was so great, he says, the cries went up to the heavens. His hand was heavy. He's the conqueror. Now we see in the next scene, as we read in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 from God's word together, Let's read God's holy word in this this third scene. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, don't send it away empty. By all means, return to him a guilt offering. And if you're an Israelite, just for a moment, that's not in the passage, but if you're an Israelite and you're reading that, you're thinking, yeah, that's right. A guilt offering is what's needed. And if you're a Christian, you're thinking, yeah, that's right. A guilt offering is needed. Let's go back to Scripture. It says, then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and the images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts? As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at his side, the figures of gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up, on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut them up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and a box of the golden mice and the image of the tumors. And so what do we see in these verses? We see another scene that the author is trying to get us to see about God's presence, and it's that God's presence cannot be ignored for long. God's presence cannot be ignored for long. You may think you can ignore God's presence, but His presence cannot be ignored for long. He may seem to tarry to wait. The ark had wreaked havoc among the Philistines for seven months. Kind of the month of completion, seven full months. And seeing the ark back, it wasn't just a way to get rid of God. It would have communicated a political message too. It would have been the Philistines saying, 
We are defeated by this God. We're sending him back to you. We thought we conquered him, but he, in fact, has conquered us. It would have been a political message for them to send the gods back. And so they sent the ark back, and they they weren't sure how to do that, but they were calling it quits. They were admitting defeat. So they call the diviners, the priests, their magicians in, and they say, what should we do? Some kind of appeasement is necessary. So they're told to make a guilt offering because they know that they've sinned against God. They've offended them. They were guilty. You see, that's, that's a basic knowledge that every human is given. Now, you can suppress that knowledge of the truth. And God eventually will give you over to the hardness of your heart. But his wrath is being stored up for the day when it will be poured out. And in this passage, we see that he, they were being warned, don't harden your hearts. That's a good warning for anybody here who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't harden your hearts. It doesn't end well. The Egyptians, the plagues that came upon them, it was a sign of God's judgment for them hardening their hearts. The Philistines, they knew those stories. They saw what God had done to them and they said, don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians. We should learn from that. Let's make a guilt offering. Because they knew that they were guilty and we all inherently to some degree know that we have offended God and that we're guilty and something is not right and we can't get to his presence and something must be made Right. And they knew that payment should be like the punishment. They told them to make golden tumors, golden rats. And they, they wanted to get God's heavy hand from them. They didn't repent though. What should they have done? What should we do when we realize that we've offended a holy and righteous God and that we are guilty before him? They should have truly repented. Instead, they were just trying to get rid of their guilt so they could get rid of God. They weren't really turning to worship Him. They they at least knew enough to stop opposing Him. But they just wanted to get rid of the consequences. And sometimes that's how people, how we can be too. We just we make apologies to God because we want to get rid of the consequences. We say we're sorry. We we feign repentance at times trying to get God off our backs. And they, they, were, they were still being somewhat superstitious and testing God in the story. Why does it tell us these details? It talks about milk cows. They, they weren't work cows is what we're trying to see. These, these were cows who were not used to being hitched to a yoke. And I was raised in the rural parts of Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley and we were surrounded by farmland. And, and on farms, you would never see dairy cows doing any work. They ate, they kind of chewed their cud, and they just kind of stood there. And then they got milked. And that was it. That was all, that was all dairy cows do. They're relatively lazy animals to some degree, but God made them that way to produce good things for us, like cheese, right? But they're hitching up milk cows. Now, in that day, they would have hitched up, um, work cattle. They would have had cattle that would work, but milk cows did not work. And so they're saying they're hitching up milk cows, but not only that, They'd never been yoked before. They'd never been trained how to take a cart and, and where to go. Not only that, they had young. They'd just given birth to young. And everyone knows you don't separate a mama animal from their baby. And that's what, that's what these agrarian society would have realized is that there's no way you're going to separate these mama cows from their, their babies that they're nursing. And not only that, they're not going to do anything for you. They're probably just going to start eating grass if you put a yoke on them. And they're definitely not going to go in one direction. 
If they get a yoke put on them and a cart that's heavy. And so it really is a serious test here because these, these separated calves, and it says they were lowing all the way. What that meant was they were lowing for their calves, but they didn't go in the calf's direction. And their test was to put the ark on a new cart, maybe out of respect for the God of Israel, and they were put their guilt offering on the cart and sent it away and let the cows go wherever they wanted, knowing by default they would try to go home. And so they were, they were proving that this was a good test of this is not coincidence, this is truly God. And they tested God, and God proved that he was truly in control, not only Dagon and them and their lands, but of their cattle too. It brings us to the fourth scene that we're going to look at where God returns to his people victorious. You see this fourth scene, God returns to his people victorious. See this in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 6. Let's read this together. Let's read the scene and kind of picture it in your mind. This is God's word. It says, And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway. Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord in the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And what do we see here in this scene is that God returns to his people victorious. He cannot be easily dismissed. God cannot be easily dismissed. God condescended to the Philistines' level. He showed them that that he was over their, their cows. And he proved that he was the one leading these cows in a place they would never go. They didn't turn aside. They didn't turn aside to graze, to find water, to go back to their own calves. And really, what does that look like? It looks like the ark of God returning victoriously and the people celebrating like they would celebrate a king returning home after his victory. And that's what we're meant to see is that God, the true king, he's returning home in victory. And the people rejoice. It seemed like he had been conquered for seven months, but at just the right time, he returns and shows that no, he was not conquered he is victorious over the Philistines. Does that theme sound familiar to you? How God might have seemed to have been conquered? Jesus died on the cross and his enemies said, he's conquered. The devil thought he was conquered. And yet God rose from the dead victorious, proving that he could not be conquered. The grave could not hold him. So the response of the people of Israel was initially good. They see the cart and they see the ark and they rejoice. And here's the funny thing about Beth Shemesh. This, this little background work, if you will, is that Beth Shemesh was the place where the Kohathites, the, the clan of the Levites, the Levites were the people who were in charge of worship of God. They were the priesthood, came from the Levites. And the, the Kohathites, they were the people who were 
charged with caring for the ark. And so where did God send the ark? He sent it right back to the people who should exactly know what to do. Right back to the people of Beth Shemeth, to the Kohathites. And yet, it was a mostly good response. They, they, they were right to sacrifice and make burnt offerings and rejoice. They kind of fudged a little bit and they sacrificed milk cows instead of bulls. They would have known what the sacrifices of the ark should have been. And the Philistines, they see this and they, they think, okay, God's accepted our, our, our offering. And they went back and they ignored God again. But God cannot be ignored. And, and we know that later on, David defeats Goliath of Gath. And then the people of the Philistines are routed and defeated. So many people, though, today who experience something of God get a glimpse into his work and turn away and go back and do their own thing. They, they did the same. But God was returning to his people victorious and the response, though, it wasn't altogether what it should have been. And so the scene, the final scene is sobering. This, this fifth and final scene. Look in, in chapter 6, verse 19 through 7, 1. We're going to see that God is holy and he will not be treated as common. That's the final scene that we see. God is holy. His presence is holy. He won't be treated as common. So let's read God's word together again. It says, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord has struck the people with a great blow. Then the people of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why? Because his presence was, was not where it belonged. His word, his, his presence is holy and it's not to be treated as common. Even with his own people, he wants his own people to see that they don't just approach God as a common thing. God is near to his people, but he is not common. God draws near to his people so that they can come near to him. And and God wants us to come to him as his children, and yet he does not want us to take him lightly. He takes worship seriously, so he strikes down 70 men of the best Shemeth. He demonstrates he's holy even amongst his own people, he won't be taken for granted. Let that be a lesson for us. God's not to be taken for granted. Not to be treated as common. The people responded, but they didn't respond like they should have. They didn't repent. They didn't turn to him, worship him as holy. And, and here's the really sad thing. In, instead of seeing God's holiness and repenting, how did they respond? Instead of answering that question of who, is, who can stand before the holy God and saying, We need him to mediate for us. They said, who can we send him away to as well? Just like the Philistines. And so the presence of God was 20 years away for the people of Kiriath-Jerim. And there's something really kind of interesting about these people. You see, the people of Beth Shemesh, they were Kohathites from the tribe of Levi. They were meant to take care of the ark. The people of Kiriath-Jerim, they weren't actually Israelites. 
They, in, in, in the book of Joshua, we see that they tricked Joshua into letting them be part of the people of Israel um, because they knew they were about to be conquered. And so they pretended like they were people from far away. And they came and they said, hey, we're from far away. Let's make a treaty. And Joshua said, okay. And they tricked them. And then they said, psych, we're really your neighbors. Well, they didn't say psych, but basically. They said, ha, we're really your neighbors. You made a treaty, though you have to keep it. And so we see that really God's mercy in, in bringing his presence even to foreign peoples because they put their faith in him and were willing to bring his presence into their midst. And they have to ask a question. The people of people Beth must ask a question. It's a good question that we need to ask. Everyone needs to ask. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You see, the presence of the Lord is a problem. The presence of the Lord is a problem. Mankind needs God's presence, but his presence is the problem. It can't bear sin. His presence burns against all ungodliness. All who are sinful, his hand is heavy on all who treat him lightly. It's only a matter of time. And the Philistines, they get away with ignoring God and seem away for a while. But the Philistines were conquered by God. And no matter who you are, you have to deal with this problem of God's presence and you can't solve this problem on your own. None of us can solve this problem of God's presence on our own. None of us can, can make our way back to God in our own terms. None of us can be good enough on our own. None of us can ignore God and get away with it for very long. We're meant to long for, to look for God's presence and, and to come to Him on His own terms. And I hope this, this effect of this passage is twofold, to seeing this problem... I, I hope that if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that this passage highlights your need to deal with this problem of God's presence and you don't ignore it any longer. I hope that you see that God's not to be trifled with. And and His presence is really the problem of our sin and only our sin, our sin can only be removed by it being paid for completely. You see, the ark was a temporary measure. And you, you remember what the ark looked like? Have you ever read about what the ark looked like? It was a it was a box that was gilded with gold. And inside the box was what? The the Ten Commandments. And what were the Ten Commandments? They were they were God's laws. The ways that man needed to relate to God. They were a constant reminder there is one way to come to God through his law. And yet there was a constant reminder that man could never come to God's presence because he was always a lawbreaker. But God didn't complete the ark there by putting the Ten Commandments in. He said to put something on top of the ark. He said to put a mercy seat on top of the ark. That two cherub would be over. And the high priest would come once a year to this mercy seat. And the only way for God's people to come into God's presence once a year vicariously through the high priest was that the high priest, he would sprinkle himself with blood and purify himself so he didn't get killed just walking in there. But then he would do what? He would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the atonement. So once a year, that blood of the atonement would cover the mercy seat, and in a way, it would block, it would block the fact that the man had not kept God's law. It would be a shield or a covering between the law and God. It would be the means by which God would bring his mercy down to his people. And so in in the New Testament, we can see that, that God's presence did not go away forever. But we know that God sent his presence in his very own son, the the son of God incarnate. And so this question still remains for humanity today, though. 
how can we draw near to God's presence? What should we do with this holy God? And I hope for a believer that you're sitting here today and you're thinking, God's presence is serious. And He's holy. And it's a big deal as a Christian that we can come to His presence. And it should cause worship from us. And we shouldn't take our privilege lightly. We can take our privilege freely, but not lightly. And that question, it remained in the, in the New Testament. In Mark 5, it tells the story of how um, Jesus, he had, he had delivered this demon-possessed man, had, had terrorized the people, and he'd gone through the tombs, and no one could restrain him. And so Jesus comes in this legion of demons, he delivers them, and the people, they come to see him, and they come and they see him sitting there in his right mind, and they have the same response to the Philistines and the people of Bethlehem, and they say, get rid of him! They beg Jesus to part from here. Luke 5, even Peter, he's in a boat. The disciples in the boat. Jesus goes out and he says, hey, cast your nets here. The nets are so full to overflowing. How does Peter respond in Luke 5? He says, he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. Peter, prior to receiving Forgiveness of Jesus knew that he was sinful. There was a problem with God's presence. The chief priests and the council in John 11, they saw how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw it with their own eyes. It was, it was more than three days, so they knew that he had already begun to stunk, stink. And, and yet, Jesus called for him to come out, and Jesus was doing many miracles. And they say, if we let him go on like this, in, in, in John eleven forty eight, if we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. There's a problem. The Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them said, you know, don't do anything. Isn't it better for one man to die for the people? So the whole nation wouldn't perish. And it says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, what did they do? They made plans to put him to death, to get rid of him, to take his, to get rid of this presence of God. Hebrews 2 informs us, it says about Jesus, that through death he came that he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to turn away, to do with the blood on the mercy seat was to turn away God's wrath for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness for us after this saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, listen to this kind of arc language. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, get close to God's presence, his ark, by the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near like the high priest with a true heart and full assurance of faith with what? Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast confession of our hope without waving for he who promised is faithful. And then as we close, one more verse in Hebrews eleven six. We need to come to God in his presence in faith. Faith, trusting in Jesus, our great high priest, who has made a way through his flesh, who has atoned for our sins by his blood, so that we might come into the presence and receive what? Mercy. From the very glorious presence of God. And we do this by faith. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For every who draw near to God must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. The ark, it was a symbol of God's throne. And now we, we draw near to God's presence, the very throne of grace. And, the, and we do that through the fact that we've been sprinkled clean with his blood. So we can go into the Holy of Holies. That we've been made clean and that Jesus has provided ultimate atonement for us. And so that now he's, he's provided and, and sits down on the mercy seat to mediate God's presence to us continually. We receive what? Mercy and help in our time of need. Not because of a mere animal's blood, but because the blood of Jesus atones and covers our sins forever. And what else does he do? We're clothed in the right living of Jesus, the righteous robe, so that when God looks on us, he doesn't see the deserving of Jesus. He only sees our deserving. He sees only deserving of Jesus. If you're not a believer, he'll go on in a sense. He'll go down the road. You can send him away, but and he won't bother you for a while. You don't have to see him, but... But God's not absent. You can harden your heart. God will give you over to that. You can send the truth down the road. You can do that for a little bit, but he's coming again more fully. And at the end of time, he will judge the nations. But he's made a powerful way for us to come into his holy presence, his fearful presence. So the question for all of us is, what are we going to do with this holy God's presence? Christian, keep drawing near. Come to him in prayer. Humble yourself in worship. Cry out to him and seek his mercy that comes only through him. Set aside any self-achievement. Don't play around with deaf, mute idols, but trust in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these pictures that have shown us who you are and that your presence is great. Thank you, God, for showing us that you desire to be with us, but apart from your way, your presence would be a problem. But thank you, Lord, that you have shown us that there is a way that we could become your people and be brought into your presence. God, I pray that we might glory and revel in that. We might set aside all self-attainment we might prostrate ourselves in worship before you, God, and that we would set aside any idols that are mute, that can't help us, that are powerless, God, that we would turn from them and we would turn to you, the true God of the presence that, that is powerful. And we would look to you for mercy and grace to, to conquer our sins, to conquer our idols. 
And God, I pray that you break through hardened hearts who don't know you. And God, I pray that all who don't know you would turn to you and cry out for mercy. And thank you, God, that your mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to share the words from a song with you. They were encouraging to me. I hope they're encouraging to you as well. Uh, it's an old song that we used to sing. It's, it's called In the Presence. And it says, In the presence of your infinite might, I'm so small and frail and weak. When I see your power and wisdom, Lord, I have no words left to speak. In the presence of a holy God, there's new meaning now to grace. I hope that's true this morning. You took all my sins upon yourself. I can only stand amazed in the power of your glory. All my crowns lie in the dust. You are righteous in your judgments, Lord. You are faithful, true, and just. And I cry, holy, holy, holy God. How awesome is your name. Holy, holy, holy God. How majestic is your reign. And I am changed in the presence of a holy God. Amen. Well, you may be dismissed. Uh, we would love to have you back here again next week. Love to have you meet Ahmad. Please let there be a long line of people talking to him, thanking him. And you can come up and take a look at the plate too. Um, with that, go and pick up your kids for their time as ministry. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>